Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome to our 102nd podcast of Twins Talk Theater. Today we have Mark Blankenship, who's a journalist, podcaster, dramaturg, and has recently launched a new project, which is a print theater journal called The Flash Paper, which I believe you've been working on for a while, but just kind of went to print during, or the first issue went to print during during the quarantine. Uh, so we're excited to have you on. We've never had a journalist or reporter on before, but we're also super interested in your podcast life as well as what got you to where you are. So welcome to our podcast first. We're excited to have you on. <laughs> uh, it is my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Our, so our first question is, how did you how did you become a theater journalist? Was that something that you always wanted, a journalist and podcaster? Or did you start in theater? Or did you start in journalism? What was kind of your um, trajectory to where you are now? Yeah, uh, so I got to college uh, undergrad thinking I knew everything there was to know about the theater because I had been in so many uh, youth theater plays at the community <laughs> theater in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And like I had played the Scarecrow and the Wizard of Oz. Like that's <laughs> Then so I got to uh, undergrad. I went to Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, mm-hmm. and uh, I was got into the improv comedy troupe on campus, and then also started to take anthropology classes, and really was loving them, and was also loving English classes because writing had always been something that I had really enjoyed, and I'm a, an avid reader to this day. And I remember saying to one of my fellow improvers one time in the back of the car as we were driving to the all-night diner after rehearsal. (laughs) As 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 everybody does. (laughs) Still to this day, yes. That's right. Uh, I said, I wish there were some way that I could combine my love of English, anthropology, and theater. And she turned around and said, well, do you know what a dramaturg is? And I did not know. And I had one of those moments when you realize, oh, wait, maybe I don't know everything. And fortunately, uh, Emory University uh, was connected to an equity theater. So there were a couple of dramaturgs who worked with the theater at Emory who were also on the undergrad faculty. And I was able to learn and then practice dramaturgy as an undergraduate student, but working with equity level performers. It was a really unique and wonderful opportunity. And in the course of doing that, I also became, uh, I started to become a theater critic for my college paper. And I realized that I had been a theater critic all my life without even knowing that that was what it was called, because I had (laughs) always, and not just theater, but anything with a narrative, I realized I loved thinking about how the story worked. How is this story put together? How does this narrative work? I loved even about pop songs, thinking about how does the structure of the lyric work? And I didn't know that that was a job. It was just a thing I did. And then in college, I finally realized, oh, this is a professional opportunity. So then um, shortly after college, I got a job as a literary manager of a theater company in Atlanta and worked there and then was also doing music reviews for an alt weekly in Atlanta. This is the most early 2000s story of all time. And then (laughs) I um, applied to and got into grad school for dramaturgy and dramatic criticism, both together. And it ended up being the ideal program for me. And by the time those three years were up, I had really committed to the notion of wanting to work as a theater journalist 
So while I was still in school, I started freelancing for Variety and The Village Voice. Then I moved to New York and I said, okay, I'm going to take out a last minute loan from grad school, which I did. And I'm going to live on this loan for six months in New York City. And I'm not going to give myself permission to do anything except work as an arts journalist. And I won't allow myself to take a second job, like a safety job for six months. And I'll see if I can do it. And fortunately, within three months, I was able to compile enough freelance work as an arts writer that I was able to support myself. And so that led me on the path that I'm still on in terms of my career. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Podcasting did not exist when I moved to New York. Uh, it had not yet been invented. So I had I could never have imagined that podcasting would have been part of my life. And even when I first knew what they were, I still would never have imagined it. But now <laughs> here we are. <laughs> well, we could kind of say the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Where did you go to grad school at? Um, I got I went to Yale Drama. Oh, okay. So it was you were already in the city and had or close to the city. You weren't in Atlanta anymore. Right. I moved up. So I was the first person in my family to move north. Mm. And uh, I well to, to the northeast. And uh, I and then I was coming in from New Haven to New York to see shows all the time from 02 to 05, which facilitated my ability to start some of that freelancing because I would come in to see a show and then write about it, which worked out really well. That does work out really well. Did you do a lot of dramaturgy for new works or works that were already yeah, so in the existence? Drama, I, so it's so interesting to – my concept of what my dramaturgical life is has changed so much since I was in school. When I was a student I, and uh, when I was a literary manager, I was also the dramaturg of the plays that the theater did. So I was consistently working on – either the second or third productions of new plays, mm. or I was working with playwrights on their work in school. But now I have since realized that my my dramaturgical training, which is of course part and parcel with my training as a critic, is really about building structures that then give artists the space to be heard. And I realized <laughs> that what being a dramaturg, uh, the, my dramaturgical training and my journalism training really taught me to think about everything in terms of structure. And so I was, you know, I think about, okay, um, I, when I got hired at Theater Development Fund, for instance, which some of the listeners might know as the place that uh, created and owns the TKTS booth in Times Square. Ah, uh, okay. Yes, good old TKTS. <laughs> I know that one. They hired me uh, in 2009 to launch an online magazine for them. And of course, the journalism part of it was something that I knew how to do because I'd been at that point writing uh, as a theater critic and theater reporter for five years. But I also was able to think structurally about what TDF was and how it approached theater and then think, OK, well, what magazine makes sense inside the contours of this organization? And then TDF Stages is the name of the magazine that I created. And uh, I worked on it for eight years and it was awesome. And I realized that being a dramaturg is something that you you can be a dramaturg in many, many contexts. So I haven't been a production dramaturg in a long time, but I have been a dramaturgical professional for my entire career, if that makes sense. That's an awesome way of looking at it. I yeah, I've never really thought, thought about it, it that way. Outside of working on a show doing dramaturg. Yeah, you know, dramaturgy. and it's dramaturgs are such dramaturgy is such a flexible profession. And 
and it really does um, lend itself to being applied in lots of different ways. I'm uh, connected to an organization called the Literary Managers and Dramaturgs of America. And one of the things that's so interesting about the LMDA, as the cool kids call it, is, um, <laughs> is just seeing how many different ways people utilize their dramaturgical skill. Or another thing is, I look at the people that I went to grad school with who were in my class the six of us who were in that class together all do completely different things, but we all utilize our dramaturgical skill. That's awesome. I want to look into that more. I really don't know much about dramaturgy at all. To me, it was the person who gathered the historic information and made sure everything made sense. So uh, (laughs) I guess that's very vague. (laughs) But the thing is, you know, dramaturgy is very hard to define. Even dramaturgs. We all, the the joke in grad school was always, well, when you go home for Thanksgiving and people ask what you're doing, just say theater. Like nobody (laughs) understands. Oh, we just say um, not acting. We do the backstage technical theater stuff. And that's about all people get. The best, the, like, every theater professional, it's like, how do you talk about what you do to your family? And it's like, I don't know. And, like, I remember that my parents, my parents didn't really clock that I was working as a professional until I interviewed uh, Elton John for the for Billy Elliot when it came to Broadway. Mm-hmm. And it was suddenly like the ripple effect in my family. Oh, he interviewed Elton John? Oh, he, okay. Okay. He has a job now. But, you know, it's, it's such a thing, but, so, but that's just to say that it's a completely fair thing to not quite have a bead on what the dramaturg does because the dramaturg's role changes so much. And sometimes it really is that idea of research and providing historical context. And sometimes it's about doing something like what I do, which is, again, trying to create structures and think through all of the elements of a structure so that you can then empower artists inside of them. And um, in every dramaturg, you kind of have to build your own path in a way. And um, what I have found is this ability to fuse my training as a journalist and a storyteller with my training and passion for editing with my structural sensibility. Those things lead me to things like the flash paper uh, or to the podcast that I do, because they're, they're, they're a combination of all of that. They require systemic thinking they require big picture thinking about what you're trying to accomplish but they also require in the moment on the ground storytelling interviewing conversation and uh i just find that i feel most alive when i'm getting to do things like that with the tdf what was it tdf magazine oh, TDF, TDF stages. Stages. Yeah. stages stages so you were you like the editor for that as well? Or what, oh, is, yes. what was that title called? So I was the director of editorial content at TDF. And, That's uh, like three different titles to me. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So, but <laughs> basically, I was journalism at TDF. So I created the magazine. I was the editor. I was the chief writer, the head writer. I wrote the most. But then I also had a group of 10 to 15 freelance writers who would write pieces for me consistently. We published four to five things a week. So the pieces oh. that I wasn't, I would report and write pieces myself all the time. And then I would um, assign pieces to writers who would then send them back to me and I would edit them. And then eventually I also created the video department at TDF. And I created two ongoing video projects there. One of them was called, well, it's still going. It's called Meet the Theater. It's a series of short documentary films about interesting smaller theater companies in New York City. And when I was there, I directed like 50 of these things and we would go on site. I would have a um, freelance videographer 
an editor and we would go on site and I would sit down and on camera interview all of these folks who worked in these theater companies. And then I would take the raw footage, usually like 90 minutes of raw footage, and I would make a script out of it that was like three minutes long. And then we would release that documentary short uh, as a feature in TDF Stages magazine. But then we would also give it to the theater company so that they could use it themselves. Like as a promo? Yeah. And I felt like it was really important. And this kind of actually gets at what I've been trying to do with my whole professional life. I really want my work to, again, create opportunities and platforms for artists to be heard. And so when we would make these films about these theater companies, I was excited to be able to ask them, why do you get up and do what you do every day? What is it about this theater company that keeps you coming back? And really get them to talk about their passion. And then I was able to make this this project and then hand it to them as a tool. And I feel like I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing in the world if I am able to do things like that, if that makes sense. That is so cool, though, because you're not just, like, using it for yourself and to better yourself, but, like, you're giving it to them to be like, hey, here's something you probably didn't have the time or resources to do that can help you, and then we're going to put it on our webpage and advertise you, and that probably helped them a lot. Well, you know, it was awesome. Some of those videos, um, like, we did one for a company here in New York called The Irish Rep. It got mm-hmm. seen 14,000 times. And I was like, heavens to Betsy, they could sell out an entire season and 14,000 people would yeah. not have seen them. So I've, I I did feel that way. And, you know, not to get too woo-woo here on this <laughs> podcast, but one of the big things that happened to me, has happened to me over my professional life is making the transition from always doing things to build my brand, quote unquote, to instead doing things that feel like they facilitate opportunities for more than just myself. And I have realized that I keep coming back to this concept of being awake. I feel the most awake when I am working on something that benefits me and someone else, because it just feels like, I guess at the end of the day, I came to this to answer one of your first questions. I came to this work through theater school. You know, I came to this work through the communal experience of making things with people. And so there's this sense sometimes that being a critic, especially is about being alone and that Mm -hmm. you isolate yourself from the work and from the artists, but I don't want that. (laughs) So I just was, so I have (laughs) for better or for worse. I keep putting myself in these positions where I keep making this stuff that is designed to let the dramaturgy and criticism part of the process intersect with all of the rest of it, because we're all part of the same circle in a hoop that never ends circle of life. <laughs> right. Which we hope will continue at some point. Yes, exactly. right? <laughs> Snake eating his tail just suddenly stopped. Uh, <laughs> so one thing I've always wondered about critics is I always wondered if any of them, and I know that's vague, like every critic ever, but if they have theater background, because so often yeah. I read a review and the review is telling the plot which if I wanted to know the plot of the story, I'd look on Wikipedia. So how much, like, when you review, like, how much are you just telling the plot and how much are you actually, like, looking into the actual technical and design and the acting and the way the story's told because they're not all told the same versus just telling the reader the plot of the story and why they should go see the play? Right. Fair question. And I, um, to be fair, I have not been a regular theater critic in quite some time. But back in the day, I was reviewing for Variety mostly. But I reviewed for um, the Times, uh, New York Times, and a couple of other places as well. But I think that um, 
But I am on the faculty of the National Critics Institute, which is part of the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in Connecticut. And <laughs> every year, a group of 12 to 15 currently working theater critics come and do a boot camp to sharpen their skills and sort of have a professional development experience. And what I can say is that maybe 50 percent, 60, 50 to 60 percent of the people who do that work that I've met, uh, myself included, have a very strong and specific theater background. And a lot of them, like me, trained in the theater and then realized, oh, this is actually what I want. But the rest of them that come at this from different places, you don't get to do, you don't get to the point where you're doing this work regularly as a critic unless you really care. And um, I think that it is easy to assume that critics are against the art but uh, I would say that sometimes not... it kind of seems like that, doesn't it? Yes. And, you know, I can't speak for all critics because, you know, in the same sense that, we you know, like nobody who is a member of any profession, there's no there's no aspect of our field in which 100 percent of the people have completely excellent motives or completely excellent practices. Mm -hmm. But I really believe firmly that most of the people who work as theater critics and theater journalists do it because they have the inherent skill set that it takes to look at a work of art and write about it in such a way that an audience can understand it. And they have a belief in the value of that art that makes them want to use their skill set in its service. And yes, sometimes reviews can be um, snide, unhelpful. Sometimes, like you said, they can uh, resort to plot only. And I think that sometimes those are just the aspects of critics who are maybe learning what to do. And, you know, like actors learn on stage in front of people, critics for better or for worse, often learn by publishing and it doesn't mm. necessarily soothe what happens to the artists whose work is being written about it doesn't necessarily help the audience but a good critic is someone who will swiftly evolve uh, out of just doing that plot summary thing and dig into something deeper a, a deeper conversation about the work i have gone on a super tangent i don't know if i've really even answered your question no, no, that's perfect because sometimes i just wonder like did you just write because you you know you didn't understand the show, so you just gave me the plot, or right. You know. And I and, and I've only been in Southern California. I've never really right. done theater much outside of Southern California. So you know, my critics' review and stuff are pretty limited. The same people do every show, right? Uh, and sometimes they're very helpful or interesting, and then half the time I'm like, I don't. Why did you even write this? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Was it around this time when you were a critic that you you wrote two companion books, right, for ah, Broadway shows? Was I that did. around that same time? Because the way you're describing them kind of sounds like what I imagine when I see companion books for shows. Oh, my gosh. So it's uh, interesting because uh, no, not at all. My career has been so weird and gone down so many paths. Um, the the criticism really – I've, I've, I've still write and or, or on my podcast create – pop music and television criticism. I do that as recently as this week. But theater <laughs> criticism for me in terms of writing reviews really stopped in like 2009. And the books that I wrote, uh, I wrote companion books for The Band's Visit and Be More Chill. And those books uh, were filled with interviews. I interviewed like 15, 16 people. And I also sort of created the structure of the book. I decided what were the features in this book going to be about? What order were they going to come in? 
What topics were we going to cover? Who was I going to interview to cover a said topic? Like when should David Cromer, the director of the band's visit, come into the book? Should it mm. be before or after David Yazbek, who is the comp- who was the composer? Like how do we? I, I designed all of that and then interviewed everyone and wrote everything. But I did that in 2018 and 2019 when I was employed with an arts marketing agency here in New York. Uh, I got laid off because of COVID from that job, but that was just another thing I did for two years that was really interesting and was like another way of bringing journalism and dramaturgical thinking into my life uh, in yet another avenue. Is that something that you're commissioned or that gets commissioned? Like, does somebody come to it and say, we're producers of the show, we want a companion book to go with it? Yeah, so the advertising, it's not the same for every process, but in the two books that I wrote, it was the the producers wanted it and the agency was able to provide it through my services. That's cool. I always wondered how that came about. Yeah, and it's different every time. Like sometimes a producer will have a relationship with a publisher of a major imprint like Schuster mm-hmm. and Sons or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or something like Dear Evan Hansen. There's like 15 companion books about that because <laughs> – the guy who wrote the book of the musical also has written a novelization and he did that through connections that he had in other parts of the industry. And so every, every show sort of takes a different path to having a book. All these things I just never think about because they don't cross my mind. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's also just, I, and I honestly never knew any of that either. And like another great example, the two books that I wrote were only in the theater, whereas the wicked book is sold in Barnes and Noble and that's a completely different type of process. So, yeah, there's just layers upon layers upon layers. Also, you can only get those books if you go and see that show and then buy them at the merchandise booth outside in the lobby. Yes. And, uh, for instance, if the Bands Visit tour were not currently uh, on hold, you could buy the Bands Visit book if you went to see it on tour. But you can't right now. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's doing anything. Yep. Right. Except reading the books that they've already bought. <laughs> yes, although again, that's um, that is why the flash paper. One of the reasons that I'm glad that the flash paper exists. Um, is it okay if I talk about the flash paper? Oh no, yeah, yeah that was yeah, gonna be my was, next question. Yeah, well, because plenty sort of, of questions. It sort, of, it sort of segues naturally into the fact that I had been thinking about creating a print publication that features theater artists for about a year. And when the shutdown happened, it really drove me to finish the idea and bring it to life because right now the flash paper is a thing that you can go online to theflashpaper.com and order it. It will come to your house. It is a physical object. And all 12 of the pieces inside were created by theater people. And all of the pieces were created in response to the prompt that I gave our contributors, which is, what will it be like when social distancing ends? Because I really thought it would be interesting mm. to use the flash paper as a way of taking the temperature of where the theater community is at any given moment. So that's why the subtitle is it's the flash paper theater's thoughts on right now. So this first issue is meant to be a sort of time capsule of where we were in April, in April, May and June of 2020. And so the people who contributed, they three people wrote original plays. Uh, one woman drew a comic book by hand. Uh, there are, there's a manifesto in there. There are photo essays in there. And it's this opportunity for theater artists to respond without a theater. They respond in this book and everything that they made was meant to be read. It was meant to be on the page. So there's none of that awkwardness of trying to translate your stage show into a book. It's just, no, you Mm -hmm. created this piece to be in a book. 
And then I love the idea that it's this tangible object that comes to your house. So it's not ephemeral the way that so much theater is. And then every for every single copy of the book that is sold, every single issue of the flash paper that is sold, a dollar goes to every single one of those contributors. A dollar goes to me and to my colleague who designed the book. And then $2.50 goes to the Indie Theater Fund, which is an organization here in New York that supports smaller theater companies. So it's this thing where it's a platform for artists to say things, but also it's a fundraiser for not just the artists in the book, but lots of artists. And uh, I've talked myself into an excitable corner. I can't remember where I was going with that. Oh, right. But it all it all stems from the fact that I really, uh, what you mentioned about the fact that all you can do is read the books that you have right now. And I thought, this is a way to make something new from theater people that you can still access even in quarantine. Especially talking about right now, because I know like you have podcast and obviously the podcast we're currently on, but we haven't really talked a whole lot about COVID because we're more talking to people about their like overall life, how they right. got here, what they're doing, where they're going. And so it's interesting because there's so many different, I mean, we're all currently watching our world on pause slowly die. Every day there's a new theater that's closing down. There's right. a new company that goes bankrupt. But at some point we're going to come out of this and the theater has yet to die over how many thousands of years. Right. If they and couldn't so, get us in the dark ages, they can't get us now. Right. <laughs> and we've gone through the plague and we've gone through revolutions and we've gone through like everything. So... It's going to be interesting and it sucks right now, but in 50 years to look back and say this entire movement, this entire something came out of COVID. And right. it's the people who are still working right now to figure that out, that it'll be interesting to then read flash paper in 50 years and be like, oh, so that's what was happening as everyone sat home doing nothing that turned into something else, whatever that's going to end up being. Oh, gosh, that would be the dream. I mean, I I hope that some of the ideas that these uh, contributors have come up with are things that sort of seed whatever's next because they're really thoughtful, interesting, funny. Well, some of them are funny. Not all of them are funny, <laughs> but, you know, but they're really thoughtful, interesting people. But yeah, I, and I just keep thinking like, gosh, everything is changing so fast that reading some of the stuff that I've edited for this issue in six months might be like, whoa. That was a different lifetime. Well, that's well, what I was six just months thinking. ago. It was a different lifetime. So yeah. Yeah. And in March, I think most of us were like, "Oh, okay, maybe you know the summer seasons won't happen, but we'll be back in fall." You know, and the further and further it goes. Right. I had this conversation with a theater, somebody that we're doing a co-production with the other day. You know, and they're like, "Yeah, in March we thought that July was going to be fine, and now here we are in July, and it still hasn't happened." So I'm wondering, even in the the first one that you published, you know, how out of date in a sense. Not out of date, but you know, like totally how different it still is. And I think it's gonna, I'm really interested to see how the conversation keeps changing. And that's why it's so important. We've already selected the publishing date for the second issue because it's like, what's it gonna be like in December when issue two comes out? And like, how will then one and two compare to each other? And yeah, uh, it's yeah, who can say? The other interesting thing is that we live in a world of um, theater where there's no hard copy of most things, and yet everything is moving to the internet. We don't have a written... We don't have as much written things now. But, you know, I'm still hoping for the zombie apocalypse at some point. I know uh, <laughs> Twin thinks I'm crazy. 
think it'd be way more exciting than our current apocalypse. But um, <laughs> in a in a thousand years, when people don't have the internet because that's so below them, like, is anyone still going to read the hard copies? Are they still going to find that buried in grandma's attic and be like, oh, that's exciting? Because like. What kind of history have we lost because it was all verbal history being transferred down versus the stuff that made it into publications and books and scrolls and libraries? Yeah. Well, you I know, also very weird, but well, as a writer, I have <laughs> had, you know, the, 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 the conventional wisdom is that the internet lasts forever, that everything on the internet is there forever, but it's not true. I have had so much of my writing vanish from the internet because the site lost its funding or it got transported mm. to a new server and they crashed half of it. There's uh -huh. like, a lot of it is the the TV and pop culture writing I've done, but some of it was really good. I really liked it. Like this really deep dive I did once on every single one of Madonna's singles. Gone for good. Oh, so. And how interesting was it? Yeah, like all that work and then gone. I know. But we still a... have Socrates' writings from how many years ago? Like <laughs> Exactly. I mean, I don't want to front like anything that I wrote about Madonna was on par with like Euripides or whatever. But, <laughs> but I mean, like, yeah, we're so dependent. I mean, even this podcast, we have no written. I have I take notes. If somebody reads my emails, which again will be gone. Uh, there's no information about this podcast. Right. I was like, first of all, they won't make sense to anybody else besides you and I. But <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But it's all based on the Internet, whereas this is. In the time where everybody's on the internet, this is a hard copy of something that people can actually, like, sit on their dining room table for the next three months or give to a friend and be like, hey, I bought this. You should read it. It's cool or something. Well, I'll tell you, I got a particular thrill from putting it on my bookshelf, especially because the cover is designed to have it has bright primary colors on it. Excellent. So there's this red there's this red, blue and yellow and white spine now popping out of my bookshelf. And I'm like, I know exactly what you came from. This is very gratifying. And that's so cool. That well, is excellent. I am old enough that when I first started publishing in Variety, I would go to the bookstore or the magazine shop in New Haven and buy the physical copy of Variety to see mm -hmm. my review. And at that time, also this was true when I started writing for American Theater, which was right around this time, they wouldn't always put my pieces online. And there was this oh, sense, yeah. there was this sense still, this was back in 2003, the fall of 2003 was when this started. There was still a sense at the time that web publishing wasn't real, that print publishing was real. And then yep. within a few years, it had completely inverted. And now it's like, if it's not online, it somehow isn't real. So that's another thing that I want to do with the flash paper is just challenge that idea. Because, you know, the theater is real when it's not online. Printed words are real when they're not online. So a printed book about the theater is like a double F you to the idea that it only counts when it's on the internet. And I had that idea last year. Hmm. It didn't even occur to me that it would feel so resonant now when we're trying to figure out how to make theater online. And I do not in any way want to imply that theater made for online viewing is bad. It certainly isn't. But it's just like it it's is different. It's, it's different. And like. I just, I just feel like I want to resist the notion that we, that things have to only be online, which is never to say that we shouldn't have theater online because it's so good to have it for so many reasons. But like, there's more than that too. And I just, I feel like a little bit of an iconoclast being like, we will never release the entire publication online. You must buy it. <laughs> but also because of our financial model, if we don't, if you don't buy the book, the artists don't get paid. So that's another reason we do that too. 
Right. Yeah, but you, you do have it listed because I read it the other day when you sent it. Um, the artist and what the you know this one wrote a play about name. this. Yeah. And, yeah. So it was interesting because I was like, oh, there's some plays. Oh, there's some review. Oh, there's like it's a variety of things. It's not just like the same thing five people did together. So, uh, yeah, definitely gonna. Payday was today, so I will be ordering that today. <laughs> hey. Um, yeah, I, the, the, I did want to tease out, like, hey, this is, again, like you said, like, it's it's not just one type of thing. And I, I was trying to be really co- conscious of that when I was commissioning people. And when I was getting, um, we got pitches from people for the first issue. And I was trying to think, like, okay, how do I make this, all these puzzle pieces go together? No one has ever asked me this many questions about my work. I'm just like, whoa. <laughs> I haven't thought, I've never, I'm really, like, Thinking about it all in this way. It's... The other question is going to be, how has it been on the other side of the podcast? But we'll wait for that. We still got a couple <laughs> minutes of the podcast. So uh, we'll go with this one currently. No, that made me think, did, did you ask specific people to write for the first issue? Or was it a, not interview process, but a, a submission process mm. from different people? So way back a year ago at the, um, everything comes back to a diner for me too, apparently. I was oh, Cindy too. Every time I yeah. go to New York, Cindy's got a new diner for me to go check out. <laughs> That's right. Well, the, there's a woman named Randy who is the executive director of the Indie Theater Fund, which I mentioned is the organization that's getting 250. And mm-hmm. I go to, we, we go on regular diner dates. And at one of these, about a year ago, I was mentioning this idea to her. And so I had come, I brought it to her because I was like, maybe you can benefit. Maybe we can fundraise for you through this. So because I knew from the beginning that they were going to be connected to this first issue, we sent a call for submissions through her membership. Mm. And so the the people who were submitting stuff were in some way connected to a theater that is part of the Indie Theater Fund. And that, Which is um, benefiting. That's, that's an excellent – again, the snake eating the tail around and around. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> you said the first issue, are you going to choose some other organization for the second issue? Or do you think you're going to stay with the Indie Theater League? My my hope is that the next, I would like a, gr- a large group of organizations to benefit from the Flash Paper in overall, you know? So mm-hmm. I want the next issue to have 12 different contributors and support a different arts organization because I just think the purpose of this is um, to reach as many people as possible. And the Indie Theater Fund will receive money from every copy of issue one that sold forever. Mm, and so okay. I'm hopeful that if someone buys issue two and they're like, oh, I'll buy issue one as well, then boom, it's like twice as many companies or artists are being supported. Right. So I'm I'm currently thinking through other places that directly support artists that I can then support with the flash paper so that it's sort of a re-granting idea where the flash paper gives the organization money and the organization uses that money to help artists. Um, I'm thinking through who the next partner could be. Are you thinking, I know you're based in LA and all your stuff's been in LA. Not LA, New York. Sorry, New York. I forget (laughs) if if, if I'm me or Cindy sometimes. Um. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. She does does the same thing. She's laughing, but it's true. Um, are you thinking of roughly staying in New York right now because you know that area and the connections? Or are you thinking to expand? Are you thinking to expand in a year or two? Have you thought that far since you have a whole one issue out and 
is still working well, on it. <laughs> no, it's a great question. Um, so even in issue one, uh, one of our contributors, her name is Tara Moses. She's a member of the Seminole Nation. And so she lives out west. And um, I really love her piece is just especially wonderful. God, it's just like the scope of the thinking and it is so huge. And she's written this manifesto about how we can make a more just theater. And she combines like personal experiences um, as a native artist in America with uh, things that she's seen happening with other artists. And she's just got this really, really generous, very broad view of how we can overhaul the theater to make it more just. Anyway, that was just underlined for me that this is an American theater concern, the flash paper. So I really want artists from other places in issue two. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough through my work as a journalist to have met a ton of people and Twitter unites us all. And um, Mm -hmm. so I've already started to think about how we can make sure that the second issue, well, I'm sure it will contain some voices from people who live in New York, but I want it to have a purview of artists from all over the country. Okay. That's awesome. So how do people... How do people get you stuff? How do they tell you they're interested? How do they know that it's coming up and what to do (laughs) next? So we will put out a call for submissions in probably late September. And uh, although if you go to theflashpaper.com right now and you see, you can find the contact information right there. If anyone who's listening to this is interested in being involved, just email us. And uh, I would love to hear from you because there are many ways that we can support one another. And, uh, I'd love to hear from you. So if, if there's someone who's like, I would love to be per- per- to be aware of the call for submissions, I will add them to that mailing list and we will make that happen. And I would imagine too, that whoever we end up partnering with for issue two, that will they'll be connected to a group of artists that they can reach mm-hmm. out to as well. That is so cool. Like just, I love that the artist community were just so concerned about everybody, but also like helping our, our, community our people like yes it doesn't matter if i've done a show with you or not if you're an artist and you're like hey you know something i'm like oh okay great yeah you're part hey, of my I need world some help. Yeah. yeah yeah there have been so many people in my life who knew i was an artist and reached and helped me just like that like i don't know them i'm connected to them on twitter and the next thing i know they're like hey you should talk to this person and I want to be part of that type of world, you know, like I want to be involved in a community where all you have to know is that we're all in this and then we are all in it together. And yes, I'll help you. I'll like that. If I didn't want to, if I, if I wanted to live in a more selfish way, I would go work in finance or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Work nine to five, get my money, get it in, you know, normal pay raises, never have to worry about that. But none of us chose that world. Right. I, I just feel like I feel so fortunate that I am able to make choices in my professional life based on what makes me feel the most alive and communicating with and collaborating with other people makes me feel more alive. I say that all the time. Like that's why we do what we do. Like calling a show for me or like a great opening night. You just, you get this like rush and this exhilaration and like, I don't know anybody else whose jobs let them feel like that regularly. You know, it's just this like, you feel alive. It's such an amazing thing to do. Yeah. It's like all of my, all of your senses are like tingling. Yes. And you're, <laughs> and it's, but it's just incredible. And you know, Stacy, what you're saying about the fact that then we all know what that feels like. And so when we reach out to one another, we're like, yeah, I got you. Don't worry. I yeah. got you because we all know what it feels like. Yeah. And we're all 
going for the same thing. We're all trying to be a community and support each other and help each other. And nobody's in this to be like, I'm going to be a millionaire and step on everyone else. Like, that's just, if you're in it for that, then you should definitely get out. <laughs> it's not going <laughs> to yeah. work for you in this world. When did you, I'm going to jump topics now. When oh, did no. you, you have two podcasts, one podcast? I have two, I have currently have two, two right. podcasts, yes. Which came first? Okay, so the first podcast arrived in 2016 when I was still a TDF and Obama was still president. Um, and that one is oh, called Mark. <laughs> yes, that one is called uh, Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. And my friend Sarah Bunting, who is a uh, an arts journalist just like me, she and I realized that we were constantly calling each other on the phone and talking about pop music for like 30 minutes at a time. And one day we thought, well, these, these conversations are fun for us, so why don't we see if it could be a podcast? And now we've done, uh, just a few weeks ago, we recorded episode 252. Oh my god! Um, we just hit 100 yeah. and we were so excited and you're at it's, 252! But 100 episodes? Y'all, that is huge! Are you it kidding is. me? It is! It is! But 252! Oh my gosh! But it still feels, my hope for you is that you will feel as enthusiastic about your show at episode 252 as we feel about Mastis, because <laughs> it's just such a joy. And like, you may have had this experience too, the community of people that we have met who've listened to us talk about pop songs and then like email us and stuff. I just love it. It's just, it really, we're like, a, we have a little online um, weekly Zoom happy hours for our, with our listeners and like it's just that's an excellent idea it's so much fun and we did a live (laughs) episode uh last fall we did a live episode where we ranked songs called hold on so like hold on by wilson (laughs) phillips hold on by sarah mclaughlin we like determined which one was the best hold on and we we held it we did it in this um whiskey distillery in red hook brooklyn and there were like 50 people in there with us and it was the it was like being in a show it was like our show that we put on that night and the high was exactly the same so that is the first one. And then um, I got connected for the second one uh, with iHeartRadio. Mm-hmm. And they just launched about a year ago, iHeartRadio Broadway, which is their special Broadway channel. And I knew the, uh, I, I met the woman who is in charge of programming for iHeartRadio Broadway and was talking to them. And I, I, I pitched them this idea of doing a countdown show because I was like, listen, I'm old enough that I used to listen to the radio all the time. And every oh, I, good radio station has a countdown yeah. show. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially around like Independence Day or Memorial yes. Day, New Year's, there's countdown. You can't do uh, anything but countdowns around New Year's. You've got to count down those hits of the whole world. <laughs> so for the, for iHeartRadio Broadway, for um Coming right up on 10 months now, I've been hosting a show called The Show Tune Countdown, where every week we count down the 10 best songs in a crucial musical theater category. And the the listeners vote, they get the question for next week's episode. Like this week we did, um, what is the best musical theater song by a character who only has one scene? And oh. we, we put that out there and... People vote on social media. They they list their choices. And then I put together the top 10 and I count them down in order from 10 to one. And I give little fun facts about each song. And this is my way of sneaking dramaturgy into the show because mm-hmm. I like, for instance, one of the songs, spoiler, uh, is uh, uh, Beauty School Dropout from Greece because mm. that's, teen, that's Teen Angel's only song. But that yeah. song, <laughs> that's that song functions in a really interesting way in that show. And I think is actually sort of crucial 
for that moment of the plot. So I talk a little bit about how it functions in the show. And then I geek out because then I play a clip from Billy Porter's performance from 1994. And, you know, we get to have a good time listening to Billy Porter because he's amazing. And it's just a lot of fun. And it's a chance to celebrate lots of different uh, songs and to think about musicals from a fun angle that still lets us talk about them with substance. And um, it's just, you know, I, it's also a perfect way for me to fuse my love of pop music and my love of theater because I'm always like, OK, we're going to take a break. Like, uh a few weeks ago, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina was one of the songs on the countdown. And I took a break to play Madonna's version, but the like the <laughs> dance clubby version that was a big hit in the late 90s. And I was yes, like, don't, yes. Don't sue me, but I have to use the Miami mix now. You know, things like that. It, <laughs> it, it amuses me, if no one else. That's the important thing. I'm pretty sure Cindy and I are way more amused by our podcast than anyone else. But, uh... but that's the key. You have to be having fun. It's so you have to. Otherwise, we're like, why are we doing this? Yeah. Why did I rush home from work to do this? Because uh, you know, work <laughs> is so exciting right now. Um, it's funny that you brought up Teen Angel from Greece because my parents love the TV live version of Greece that happened a couple years ago. Yes, with Boys to Men as Teen Angel. They love it so much that they video recorded it and watch it like every year. And then when I was there a couple weeks ago, they made me watch it. And that's the one scene they both were like, yeah, we don't watch this scene. And they (gasps) skipped it. (laughs) They're like, this scene sucks. (laughs) Give me your parents' number. I'm going to text them right now. (laughs) You know, how did I not know this, Stacey? How did I not know they they recorded this and watch it all the time? They they like it. Yeah, it's so like my dad doesn't. How many times has he come to see any of our shows? Since oh, college? Five. Yeah. I think he's probably seen two of my shows since college, and he's never gone to New York to see Cindy's shows. Last one he saw of Cindy's was in Cincinnati. Like, but they love this live version of Greece. They watch it all the time. Except Teen Angel. Except Teen Angel. <laughs> they skip that one. Do they skip it in the, like, movie version? You should ask them. I, like, when was is, the last is, time is Dad just... even watched that movie? Yeah, who knows? I'm just wondering I, if they just like don't like that song, or they they just don't like this rendition of it, or I I don't know. Do, I didn't ask. I do should. your parents know about how, what a what a trooper Vanessa Hudgens was the night that she performed that? No, probably no. not. Because her dad had died the day before, oh, and gosh. she or like maybe even that day, like her dad had just died, and she still went out and did that live show, which has just made me like a lifelong admirer of Vanessa Hudgens because that's a good performance and she's just it's like amazing yeah and she was able to do that under that kind of pressure mm, that's that's my girl right there yeah it's I mean that's the intense. show must go on everybody says but I don't think people realize exactly how much we deal with for the show just to go on yeah because nobody else knows what we're dealing with but we still have right. a whole personal life that we're dealing with <laughs> while yeah. doing a show <laughs> yes no I think when um my mother-in-law died the morning that I had a show. Yeah. I had a matinee, I think, you know, and so I dealt you with that in the morning down. and then went and did it. And like, just thankfully I was in the booth by myself. It was a small show. And then just like cried through the entire show as uh, I was hitting yeah. the like cue button, you know, but. Right. And later, cause I didn't, I only told a few people and later my, my lighting designer was like, why didn't you tell me I could have just run the like cue myself. And I was like, but you don't know the show. Like, you know, the lights, but you wouldn't be able to, you know, it was a, a, a new opera which is very difficult to to follow you know i was like i don't know if you would have been able to do it but but yeah it's it's weird it's things you just have to do which is very very strange yeah, yeah. 
That is amazing. Yeah, one of my favorite parts about that show uh, is actually watching the very end where they show everybody like running around and jumping onto the golf carts and running over here and running over there and the live audience and yeah uh, all that because it mixes it mixes TV with theater and most people don't see the background of theater and they did it all live and like running it's impressive and that was on Fox right I don't know <laughs> because I, I'm almost certain that it was because to bring it back full circle. One of my classmates from Yale Drama worked as a producer on that show because she was in charge of live programming at Fox for a while. And so as a dramaturg, she was the one who was like helping figure out how to make all that happen. It was awesome. Like this yeah, was... different sets all over the place. Yeah, uh, yeah. I knew a couple people because obviously in L.A., you know, you know, everybody gets right. around. I knew a couple of people who were in the audience and I've actually worked with Barry Pearl, who was Dottie? Dottie? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, Duty? Duty? Something like that? Yeah, Duty. Um, Duty. It's the, definitely the character in Greece's name is Duty. I was like, who was Dottie? And I thought you meant who's like... Who's Dottie? Like, like, who's Dottie? But you mean Duty. Yeah. Duty. Uh, yeah, I, I just know him as Barry Pearl because I've done a number of shows with him out in L.A. And right. so I remember when he was filming it and or rehearsal and was posting pictures and then him and a bunch of friends got together to watch it and a bunch of the- people at my theater got together to watch him do it because yes, yeah, it's a small world in our world. <laughs> you just mentioned a, a person in your dramaturg class did it. And again, that's not something that I would think would be a dramaturg position yeah well that's of, of putting the, that all together yeah it's one of the so her um her name is rachel and now she works um she has been working as a t in tv production for quite some time and she is often the person who is there looking at for instance the way that the scripts are coming together and sort of thinking about the structure mm. of the overall story or with the live show it's like how do these pieces like this production is trying to communicate this and so do these when we go from here to here, what is that story telling us? And like, she's mm-hmm. doing a lot of dramaturgical work, but she's doing it for screen stuff. It's so cool. And then like another That's one of my friends, cool. um, Kate, my friend Kate, who was in my class with me, she does this really cool job with an organization called ThinkWell that creates like amusement park installations and museum installations. And one of my favorite examples is that she once did a uh, an exhibit at a museum where they had she had to figure out how to correctly space the footprints of the animal tracks that were going through the exhibit. And it's like the most dramaturg nerd thing of all time. Cause she was like, I had to figure out how many inches would be between each of the bird feet so that we could have authentic tracks walking around through the space. And I was just like, now that's dramaturgy where you least expect it. Right. And how many people are so looking awesome. at that and being like, ah, oh, they probably just laid it down. It's rough. I know. So a lot of, and that's what it's like, like anytime I've ever interviewed a lighting designer or a sound designer, they're like, our work is good when you don't notice it because that's it, what it, I say. Yeah. 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 If I'm good <laughs> as a technical director, nobody knows there was even a tech. What is a technical director? Like my right, job exactly. is to not be seen. Oh. I do look at the little footprints though. <laughs> like aquariums, especially. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder really like, cool. What kind of adhesive they use so that it doesn't peel up all the time with all those people walking over it? Okay, you don't, don't want to go that, but... relay down one of those little footprints. How many little kids are like scuffling their feet across it? And now you know that somebody else was thinking about how far apart the tracks were because mm-hmm. a real penguin could have walked there. Yeah. <laughs> 
Good. To, I'm That's next time cool. I see him, I'm going to be like, "Hey, guess what? <laughs> Somebody <laughs> probably measured those." Let me get my tape measure just to make sure. <laughs> I don't want that penguin to jump a step. He's got to stay in line. <laughs> because what kind of story would that tell? If the penguin suddenly did a double backflip, no, we then we would need to know more about the penguin. We don't have time for that. Yeah, it's a or he has like sport. a limp where it's like yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he's got an old war wound. Exactly. <laughs> There's a cane stick next to him. I'm pretty sure that one's Yoda. It's not a penguin. <laughs> now I want to go to like the wild animal park and just like edit some of these um. Well, seriously, you could like add the cane stick, and then you could be like, "I think they sell these canes in the in the gift shop. Go check." <laughs> <laughs> and half the kids would need a cane. That's right. <laughs> it would be it would be a thing. What? <laughs> how do you? Okay, so I know that the the show tunes countdown is on iHeartRadio. Yeah. What platform is the other one on? So, and what's the name Sa- of the other one? The Mark pop- and Sarah talk about Mark songs. And Sarah. Uh, Mark and Sarah talk about songs. We call it Mastis for short, but the official <laughs> name of it is Mark and Sarah talk about songs. You can find that on uh, iTunes podcast. Um, you can find it on Stitcher. You can find it on most podcast networks. Um, not on Spotify for a variety of stupid reasons, but iTunes is the primary place <laughs> where you can find us. Or you can just, um, if you Google the phrase Mark and Sarah talk about songs, it'll take you right to our website. And then you can just listen in our website as well. That's awesome. Don't worry, Twin. I have all of these written down. They, they will be attached to the post and links and all that. Because so well, the cool. thing is, I don't, I don't listen to podcasts. I don't know if you listen to other podcasts. I don't listen to podcasts. So <laughs> told me to do this. I was like, "What are you talking about?" But to listen to songs is probably something that I would totally do because growing up, we always talked about like the history of songs, or you know, when songs were written, or the 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 musicians that played it and so right. listening to you two talk about that i think would be like a whole backstory on songs that i had never thought of before same well, with I, these the show tune ones like yeah that would be awesome to listen to like i also can't listen to uh a song out of order if i'm gonna listen to wicked it's gonna be the whole album through and through <laughs> <laughs> i can't i can't do the like random song thing like there's a story there i need to hear the entire story you cannot have your narrative experience interrupted, and I, I respect that. <laughs> no, it's an important. I mean, even when I listen to the Beatles, I listen to the entire album. I know what song comes next. That song had better come next. <laughs> it is weird sometimes on it some albums not to have the next song. Yeah. yeah. Or did you ever have um, mixtapes or mixed CDs growing up, and you get so used to listening to them that then yes. whenever you hear the song out in the wild, you're like, wait. But Come On Eileen is supposed to be next because that's oh, how it that's... went on that one mixtape. <laughs> Come On Eileen is, is definitely on my playlist. And I had a playlist that was just random songs. And I listened to it so often that that was the order of the random songs. Yep. And then when I got a new iPhone, I lost that playlist. And I don't know what to do because I don't yep. know what order they were in. But that was just the order they were in. So... And, and it's, like, it's just that's the way God intended it at this point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, this is such a nerdy thing. But I... For whatever reason, every time I hear the start of an HBO show, you know, they've got that TV static sound, then it uh-huh. goes, Wah, and then yep. the show starts. I always hear the Sex and the City theme song after that, because that's the first <laughs> HBO show that I really watched obsessively. So it doesn't matter what I'm watching, <laughs> Game of Thrones, Veep, like whatever starts, I always am like waiting. And then, and then it never not. comes for the sex of the dun, 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 dun. It never comes. <laughs> See, but in my I mind, watched... it's always there. I watch Entourage like that. Mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm. what 
that's what comes next for me. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I've watched all the Game of Thrones, next is Entourage. And it just, that's right. It absolutely. It, again, that's just how it's meant to be. <laughs> I, I, we don't make the rules. These yeah. are just the rules. And we just are following them. It's not our fault. <laughs> oh, good. I'm not the only one who's crazy like that. <laughs> Sometimes I thought it was just me and maybe twin. <laughs> yeah, I I don't watch TV, so I don't know. I'm not. I mean, I'm sure I do have something like that, but it's just. Well, like you said, like when we listen to the Beatles or Rubik Fit or like any any opera or play you have done, you know the next song. You know the next note, yes. you know when it's going to be. You even know how many silence there is between that one and the next one. That's true. Well, we have a country mix CD that you and I created in, what, like, high school? Yeah, that's the way it goes. That, that's the, the song order, yeah. And like you said, if it comes on the radio, I just want the next song, and that's not the next song. Wait, yeah. what is on your country mix? Can you remember any of the songs? Oh, there's yeah. always Garth Brooks. There's uh-huh, always sure. Diamond Rio. Sure. Um, I'm sure there's a couple Reba McIntyres. Oh my god, I love Reba McIntyre. Carry on. I mean, if Jolene <laughs> comes on, everybody has to sing, right? I'm pretty sure everybody has to know the words. Too. Yes, doesn't it that's, start uh, with that's that Dolly Parton? Too. Not yeah, Reba. sorry, but like, there's just some songs that like everybody just knows the words to. Y'all, okay, so the next episode of the show, um, Mark and Sarah talk about songs next week. We're talking about Seven Lost Classics by Dolly Parton. Okay, uh, we're going to have to... Twin, I know you don't listen to podcasts, but we might have to just zoom and listen to podcasts together for that one. (laughs) Because being from Chattanooga, Tennessee, you know, country music is like in my DNA. So I'm always ready. Ooh, I love a good country lady, too. Ooh. Mm -hmm. I think the first one on this album, the the mix we have is I'm in a hurry to get things done might be Uh... the first song. But yeah, it's... There's some early Faith Hill on there as well. Oh, Yes, because like, we we did a lot of like nineties, like we did a lot of nineties country. 90s. Yeah. Do you happen to know this is not even about the theater? This is right. So, so much so of a tangent. Do you happen to know a Pam Tillis song called "Shake the Sugar Tree"? Yes, um, we didn't know the music video. We've watched that music video so many times. Yes. Why is that the best? It's so much fun to sing that song. I love that I song. I don't it know. So and cool. I haven't heard that in years. Oh okay, now God, I'm going to have to look it up and listen to it tonight. Yeah, I don't I don't even think I own a recording of it. Like, I, I'm going to have to, like... Oh, we do. We might be at Mom and Dad's house. But, yeah, it's definitely on one of our CDs. On one of our, like, country mix CDs. Yeah. Okay, but I... I'm going to have to watch a music video and everything. We're YouTubing this, like, right now. <laughs> because Shake the Sugar Tree is a... It is a stone classic like there's no i mean who else could convince us to shake that sugar tree except Pam <laughs> right and yet i feel like that's one of the ones that not everybody knows i know and it's too bad for them it is, it it is, is too bad, bad for them, for them. <laughs> okay everyone listening we are going to post about it and you can all watch it and you're welcome like just <laughs> and they're gonna be like why are we listening to shake the sugar tree on a theater podcast i'm so confused right now <laughs> because it's dramatic damn it <laughs> and i'm sure when it's i go back because I haven't watched the video for probably 20 years. It's probably going to be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of $20 dollar store budget? <laughs> yeah. Like I was, I was uh, watching some videos from, uh, oh my gosh. Diamond Rio? No, it was, uh, I, I can picture it and I can't think of it. Um, I should have been Isn't a cowboy. Helpful? I should have learned to rope oh, and Toby ride. Keith. 
Yeah, that video does not hold up. <laughs> I don't know if I know that video. I didn't know the video, and I love that song. And then I watched the video, and I was like, this ruins my entire vision of this song. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to have to watch that video. Yeah. Diamond Rio songs are like that. I expect a whole, like story in there because their songs are whole stories you know and then i watched the music video and i was like this is not what i want yeah it kind of ruins it so okay but dolly parton ones i also Mm. like the idea of replacing all the confederate statues with dolly parton i think that's definitely a much better idea i would donate money to that campaign today i mean like if if it could really happen i would be invested it would it would be pretty amazing yeah i think she should definitely be known um, not just music, but like the amount that she's given to local people and education and yes. stories and books and everything. Like she's just amazing. We should definitely have more statues of her. Yes, we should. Like seriously, take down all of the Confederate statues and put up Dolly in a variety of wigs. <laughs> and outfits? And way more cool outfits. I definitely yes. think. A variety of wigs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm highlighting Shake the Sugar Tree. (laughs) 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 See, Twin Twin always says our podcasts go to like Dungeons and Dragons because I'm a nerd. And uh, this one went to country music. Uh, This is our first one, though. Like, (laughs) well, you know, got to start somewhere. (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) Is this how your podcasts go? You don't know where it's going and then you end up with country music. Let me tell you how many episodes of Mark and Sarah talk about songs end with either Sarah or I saying, well, this is the moment we lost all our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, sometimes you just you just go down that road and you're like, how did we get here? I lost the keys. The Waffle House is closed. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> oh, God, a Waffle House. I haven't been in one of those in ages. They're not out here in California. <sighs> Ooh, and that's a tragedy. That was it the is. place that... It is. When we would leave, so we would have after uh, improv practice, which would end at midnight on Tuesdays and Thursdays in college, we would always go out to eat afterward at midnight. Of course, and I had an eight thirty class, but I was you know making bad choices. So and we would <laughs> we would either go to the Atlanta Diner or we would go to a Waffle House because they were open all night. And let me tell you, only in college does chicken fingers at one forty five in the morning seem like a good idea. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I've ever gotten anything besides, like, their hash browns, like the smothered and covered potatoes there. Oh, I should say, sorry. The the chicken fingers were Atlanta Diner. Waffle House, you're right. Sm- scattered, smothered, and covered only. Ooh, what Maybe is scattered? The... Oh, that's just, like, um, like they, if they if you get them scattered, they just cover the plate more. They spread them out. And so you get, oh, like, okay. you get better topping distribution, I feel. <laughs> oh, I mean, more oh, cheese is, is always better. I like yes. that. Okay. Yeah. I introduced my husband to the first Waffle House last year, I think, when we were down in Florida. It was a big moment for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I was in college one time, this guy came up and the server came up and said, if everybody gives me $5 right now, you can have unlimited of whatever you want except steaks. And we were like, well, didn't we're going to get a steak anyway. So we all handed <laughs> him $5 and then we were just like gorging ourselves on all of this food. And I don't to this day understand why it got to happen that way but it did and it was unbelievable i'm just thinking about all that grease right right now i'm just thinking about all that (laughs) cheese and potatoes and bacon (laughs) sauteed onions like grits i I haven't eaten dinner i haven't eaten for a couple hours so uh this sounds amazing (laughs) it's seven o'clock my time here (laughs) 
<laughs> real quick rundown and just grab me up a little. Mm-hmm, a oh, I'm telling you, we don't have them out here. I know. It's a, I'm sorry. It's a shame. I shouldn't have done that to you. <laughs> We've already talked about we can't eat indoors these days. We're all stuck outside. <laughs> also true. Also true. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, like, we've hit an hour. I know we could probably go on for another hour about everything. Uh, <laughs> it's, sometimes Sydney and I hang up and then call each other and still talk for, like, another hour about what we just talked about. And by sometimes you mean, like, more than 50% like, of the most, time. It's like, it's like, go to the bathroom, get another drink, and then come back. We'll be right back. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, we didn't. I don't know if Cindy warned you because we always forget, oh, and then not. it's kind of entertaining to forget to warn people, and then we forget every time. Um, <laughs> because we're twins, and you can see the side stories we go on. Do you have any fun twin stories? Not necessarily theater related or anything. We just find twin stories entertaining. Oh my God, I do. <gasps> Woo! Yes. Okay, Andy and Aaron George were twins that I went to college with, mm-hmm. and then. Years later, because I graduated from college in 2001, and then in 2010, my now husband Andrew and I were on a trip to Amsterdam, and we were in the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, and there in the gift shop was one of the George twins, and I went up and I said, Aaron or Andy? (laughs) It it ended up being Aaron, and it was like crazy, because we saw each other in a museum gift shop around the world, halfway around the world. So that is nine years later. Yes. I haven't seen, I hadn't seen them since 2001. I haven't seen them since, but in 2010, I saw Andy George in Amsterdam. That is so cool. I know. It was awesome. They were great guys. Cindy went on a New Zealand, her honeymoon was in New Zealand and they made friends with people on the tour. And then like three years later, they ran into oh, no, like it six years later at Universal Studios Florida from New Whoa. Zealand and recognized each other. And you Whoa. guys only knew each other for like what ten days on a New Zealand tour of Hobbiton? Yep. Yeah, that, that was, was awesome. awesome. Weird. All the millions of we were people in Harry in the Potter world. Land. <laughs> yeah. That's right? Amazing. Into like Yeah. Harry Potter Land. Yeah, it was awesome. Well, they recognized my husband mostly. He stands uh, out. So they were like he, only yep. so many of them. <laughs> that is so cool, though. <laughs> well, I like your twins' uh, taste in artwork. So, dude, this is such a cool podcast. I'm so excited, and I'm I've got so many things to look up now. Not only music videos, but like I looked up the flash paper, but now I got to order it. Um, and then more podcasts to add to my list, and then call Twin and tell her about and tell her to listen to. <laughs> yep, <laughs> exactly how it happens. <laughs> if she answers, I called her at midnight last night. She didn't want to answer. Oh no. I did not. I had work this morning. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't even remember what it was, but I'm sure it was important. <laughs> okay. Cool. I'm hungry now and got to take off, but thank you so much for being on this podcast. It was so great talking to you. Y'all, this was so much fun. Like, I, my sides are a little sore from the laughing. <laughs> like, this was what a treat. I mean, this, this was awesome. Excellent. Oh. Yay. Thanks. <laughs> And we're and this is episode one oh two, you said? One oh two, yes. So do you know when this will drop, as they say? Oh, twin. Yeah. Let's uh, see. This week is one hundred, so I don't if we might either do two next well probably just do I don't know. It could be the seventeenth or it could be the week of the twentieth. So what do you all use um 
do you have a social media for the show or anything? Yeah, we have a Instagram and a Facebook, and it's just it's called Twins Talk Theater. And then our webpage is through Podbean, so it it has all of the um the list of all the episodes with little write-ups about them. Awesome. If you think of it, can you email me when this goes live? Because I want to just make sure yeah. that I put this out on all of my social media channels too. It's been so much fun to do. Yeah. We're not very good at advertising it very well, but we should. What do you do to advertise? Like we do kind of put it out, but it's it's weird. We mostly just rely on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And like word of mouth. Yeah. And like our own personal channels, we promote it there. And at this point, yeah, I mean, we've been go- we've been going for so long at this point that it's just kind of like word of mouth seems to help us the most. Yeah. 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 That's kind of how we do it. I was just thinking earlier, I was like, oh, I forgot to share the last two. Like, I should, <laughs> I should probably do that. But, but yeah, we'll send you an email and let you know uh, when it's going out. And then Stacey always, we usually like a day or two before we'll do um, like a little preview or a write up, like a little with a few pictures or something in it just to give people a heads up of what's coming. Mm. So there's usually one or two of them before the, the podcast actually comes out. Oh so. yeah. So please. Yeah. So let me know when all of that stuff, stuff goes up too. And I will push that out through my personal channels and through the flash papers channels as well. Oh, wonderful. Great. Yeah. We'll send you an email and I'll send you an email probably tonight and ask for like what all your handles are so that we yeah. can make sure that we tag all that in there. Perfect. Oh my gosh, that would be great. Cause yeah, I'm excited to spread the word. This is a conversation I would love to share with people. It's so much fun. <laughs> yeah. Only to help our support of Dolly Parton statues across the country. <laughs> and their many wigs. I'm gonna go listen to Shake the Sugar Tree myself now as well. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So are we. Sounds wonderful. All right. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you so much. It's so much fun. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at twinstalktheater. Title music, Dance Macabre, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.